numbers as we have concluded our our study in the book of Luke and Acts, which took us about four and a half years. Um, We now enter um, the book of Numbers. And I want to begin our study in the book of Numbers by reading a passage from um, from Paul's writing to the first Corinthians. And so I think we have this uh, on the screen. I think it's important to put up there. Um, and because it is a significant passage of Scripture in helping us to understand the book of Numbers. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, listen to the word of God. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And when 23,000 fell in a single day, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This is a warning for our good. The reason I point this out is Paul gives four examples from the Old Testament. Number one, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Do not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. The third, the third one, and we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. The fourth example, nor grumble as some of them did. I point this out because three of those four examples are drawn from the book of Numbers. And he says this, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our good. So I want to begin the book of Numbers to assure you and to confirm to you that the book of Numbers is for our good. The events have been written down for our good. In other words, it is to our benefit that we have a grasp on what on what God's kindness and severity are meted out towards his people. So we look at the book of Numbers and we say it's confusing or it's foreign, but I want to begin with this. It is for our good. Good. In other words, we are not free to simply dismiss the book as some unintelligible recording of an ancient people with, with, with which we only have some distant connection. Rather, we will find that Numbers has much for us in understanding the New Testament. It has much for us in understanding the God we serve. It has much for us in understanding the sin that plagues us and the salvation that is offered to us in Christ. Notice what Paul says. We must not put who? Christ to the test. Christ is in the book of Numbers. So the sin that plagues us and the, the salvation that is offered to us in Christ, it is want us to do more than just study it because it is good for us. I want to understand why it is good for us. It is written down for our instruction. It is something that is good for us. But And I can just simply say, well, we should study it because it's good. Why is it good? What good does it offer? What instruction does it offer us? And so anyways, that's where we are going to be going in our study in the book of Numbers. Now, first of all, as we consider the book of Numbers, um, 
the first thing we encounter some very common challenges that we that that address us in the book of Numbers and confront us right at the very beginning. And that is, what about all those names? That's our first challenge. What do we do about all those names? And then the second question that usually comes up is, what about all those numbers? What do we do about names and numbers? Because I don't know about you, but I get bogged down with them. Well, let's talk about names and numbers. Why are they here? Why? What purpose do they serve? Well, it's true that there are a lot of names, and next week we'll go through the book of, uh, or the first chapter of Numbers, and really through the first couple of chapters of Numbers, there's a lot of names, a lot of foreign names, and we need to ask ourselves a little bit about those names. Well, and then later on in chapter 26, we're going to see another grouping of names. The book of Numbers um, could be divided, if you will, into two censuses. There are two censuses taken. One at the very beginning of the book, which we will talk, which is in the first chapter. But the second census is taken um, in chapter 26. In other words, the book of Numbers represents two generations. There are two generations. The, the generation of those who came out of Egypt and the generation of those who entered into the promised land. Now, that should spur a question in us. Why didn't the first generation that come out of Egypt enter into the promised land? That should be a big concern to us. And the stark reality between these two censuses is that nobody named in the first sentence, save two, are mentioned in the second sentence. That's an issue. Why is it that nobody in the first census is mentioned in the second census? Why does nobody in the first census enter into the second census, enter into the promised land? Stark reality. That's a very stark reality. Because we see that the people who came out of Egypt and who were named in the first census were faithless and they reaped the fruit of their sin and they died in the wilderness. In the second census, highlights how God is still faithful and brings his people into the land that he promised. So God is both severe and kind. He judges those who grumble against him and they died in the wilderness and he's kind in that he fulfills his promise. So here we see this very distinct order in the book of Numbers. So the first thing we see in the names is um, these two censuses divide the book. It talks about the faithless generation and the generation that's going to receive the promises of God. So that's a good broad um, understanding of the book of Numbers. But the second question then is, what about all the numbers? I mean, why do I care that in Issachar, there were 54,400 individuals, men over the age of 20, who could go to war. Or that in Zebulun, there were 57,400. Or that in the tribe of Asher, there were 41,500. And then you've got to add them all up. And the total of the 12 tribes of men over 20 able to go to war were 603,550. Nobody told me there was going to be math. Why do I need to know those things? Well, 
those who are more administrative probably love those numbers. Some of you uh, administrative people are like, right on. You've got people counting and numbers and data. Man, if they had Excel back then, this would have been awesome. But those of us who are not so enamored by such administrative details, let me give you this. Read these numbers as a Hebrew might have read those numbers. Think about it. Men of war over the age of 20. This does not include women and children. 603,550. Way back in the book of Genesis, there was a man by the name of Abram, and he had zero children. And God promised him something. He said this, Look to the stars of the heaven, so shall your descendants be. Look to the sand of the sea, so shall your descendants be. A man who had no children was going to be the father of many nations and the father of a multitude of the offspring. And then he has one child, Isaac. Isaac has two children. Those two children have, one of them had 12. And out of 12 comes this multitude of people. The promise to Abraham has not been made void. They have been slaves in Egypt for 40 years, for over 400 years. They've gone through some rough times and some good times and the promise to Abraham has held fast. I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will be as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. This is important. Those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600 and of Simeon 59,300. And of Reuben, 46,500, the promise of Abraham has been fulfilled and made good. It's been many, many years, and God has not forgotten his people. And so as we look at names and numbers, what do we see? We see God in his faithfulness, bringing the people out of bondage as he promised he would do. And even when they are faithful, he is just in his judgment towards them. And he is kind in continuing his promise in the new generation, making sure that they inherit the promises that he had made to Abram and the patriarchs. And we see this vast number of people. God has been faithful all the way through. And so we see the, the book of, of uh, Numbers has two very broad divisions. And um, if we can put that map. Oh, yeah, two broad divisions. Yeah, thank you. There is this Exodus generation, and it is characterized by unbelief. The Exodus generation, the generation that came out of Egypt, saw the miracles of God, witnessed the, the God at Mount Horeb and the giving of the law. And they are characterized by unbelief. The thing that they are characterized by is that they grumble against God. And they died in the wilderness. The second generation 
However, the new generation is characterized by belief. And I think it's very interesting how chapter 26 ends and chapter 27 begins. Chapter 26 is the second census. This is the new generation. And I want you to note, you don't have to turn there right now, but I do want you to note the very first thing that happens after the new generation is counted and then how the book ends because these are book ends. Chapter 27 begins with the daughters of Zelophehad. And if you've read through the book of Numbers or you've read through the Bible a few times, you might have wondered, what is this with these uh, sisters, the daughter of Zelophehad? And then we would probably want to ask the question, why does the new generation start with the daughters of Zelophehad? And why does the book end almost a, a parentheses or a book ends and everything in between that then I believe is uh, um, framed by these sisters. They frame the second part of the book. And just as the first generation, the Exodus generation, is characterized by unbelief, the second generation, the next generation, the new generation, is characterized by belief. And these daughters are perhaps put forth then as the example of those who believe in God. They've come out of... uh, Uh, They've come through the wilderness. They've seen God. They've seen his mighty works. They've understood the promise of God. And they understand this, that our dad had no sons. But God has promised him an inheritance. So, will you move on our behalf and make sure that our family name is not wiped out and make sure that we also have an inheritance. We believe that we are entering into the promised land. We believe that an inheritance is ours. We believe that what God has said and therefore we, des- we are, have been promised an inheritance. How are we going to receive our inheritance? And they put this forth to, Mo- to Moses Moses seeks the Lord and a resolution comes forth because there is no son for whom the inheritance would be given. And so these sisters, I believe, are put forth as the model, if you will, of belief. Women who say, we believe God that there's a promise and we will receive what God has promised. And just because there are barriers or or limitations or something that might hinder that promise, we believe that the promise is for us and for our children. And they secure that. So these are really, really wonderful, uh, a wonderful story, a great group of women who are put forth, I believe, as models of faith. So we have these two divisions, the Exodus generation and the new generation. Let me uh, put forth a little bit about how this book flows. If you had an opportunity to uh, watch the uh, the little video that I put on Facebook, uh, um, I hope that is helpful. It was very helpful to me to kind of see how the book flows and what's going on. If you haven't, go to our Facebook page, click on that video. Um, it's about six minutes or so, between six and seven minutes, and it will be a huge, huge um, help for you in understanding the book of numbers. But let's put it to, let's look at it this way. It's The book of Numbers basically is comprised of Israel dwelling in three wildernesses and two travel sections. In other words, in fact that's why I've called 
or entitled this series In the Wilderness. I've entitled it In the Wilderness for two reasons, because that's where it takes place, in the wilderness. It either takes place in the wilderness of Sinai, the wilderness of Paran, or the wilderness of Moab, but it takes place in the wilderness. The other reason I've entitled it In the Wilderness is because that's the original Hebrew name. Um, Very early on, it was called Numbers, but the Hebrews never, or not never, but um, very early on did not title it Numbers. They titled it In the Wilderness, as was their custom to title a book after maybe the first line or the first few words of um, the book. And we see that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So we're going to see in the first 10 chapters, they are in Israel is in the wilderness of Sinai. They've come out of um, of Egypt. They've traveled down to si- down through Sinai to Mount Horeb. And here they have experienced God at Mount Horeb. They have uh, received the Ten Commandments. They've built the tabernacle. They're at the wilderness of Sinai. And after two years, they're getting ready to head to the promised land. And so then they travel. And you can see the little uh, travel arrow. They travel and they go to through the wilderness of Paran, mainly, uh, primarily, to the place of Kadesh Barnea. And I'll get there in just a second. And then bad things happen in this travel section. Bad things happen, uh, well, not bad things, they act badly. Uh, bad things don't happen to them. They act badly. And in the wilderness of Paran, and then after some time here, they travel and they go to the plains of Moab. Um, so, that's the general flow. So let, I think I put a couple maps up here. This might help us a little bit. Um, let's see if they're going to, uh, to show up well. There we go. I know this may not be the, the, how well you can see this, but here's Egypt. This, we're going to follow this red line. I know there's arrows and colors all over the place. All I'm going to follow is this red line. And they, they start up here in Goshen. Remember, set my people free. And then finally the plague, Passover, uh, the plague of the death of the firstborn, Passover. And they come all the way down here. And more likely than not, Mount Sinai is right down in here. And they stay there for two years. How do I know they stayed there for two years? Because um, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. And so here they are at Mount Horeb in the wilderness of Sinai. And um, they encounter the Lord on Mount Hora, uh, on Mount Sinai. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Um, of course, things don't go really well with that, but he, then he gets a second group, uh, uh, tablets of stone, uh, a second decalogue, if you will. And then they are commanded, if you read the book of, of Exodus, they are commanded to build a tabernacle, a tent. This is where they are going to meet with the Lord. And so they spend two years building the tabernacle. Once that's all set up and ready to go, um, they are going to head out and travel to the promised land. This is the promised land. Here's the land of Canaan. So they're going to go from here to here. A simple two-week journey about shouldn't take too long. So they travel and they follow this line up. And right here they hit a place called Kadesh Barnea. This is at the southern end of the promised land. 
And they send 12 spies into the land of promise to check it out, saying, let's go see. And they come back, and there it is, a land filled with milk and honey. But 10 of the spies say, oh, yeah, but there's some really big folks there. We don't stand a chance. God brought us out here. He meant he's going to kill us. That's why he brought us here. But two people, Joseph and Caleb, said, oh, no. God brought us here. That's the land of milk and honey. Let's go take it. So at Kadesh Barnea, they complain and they gripe against God. And so God basically says, you are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You're going to wander until this first generation dies. And so they just kind of wander around the wilderness of Paran for 40 years. And after 40 years, they travel from the wilderness of Paran. And here's a second map. Kadesh Barnea right here. They travel down and they end up in the plains of Moab across from Jericho. Um, And that's where the book of Deuteronomy picks up. And so two years at Mount Horeb, they receive the Ten Commandments. They, they build the tabernacle. They learn how to live with a God who is holy. And this holy God is in their midst. They learn how to live with him. They learn how to travel to the promised land. And they witness both the kindness and the severity of God. God brings judgment when they sin. But he always offers a means of forgiveness. God is both the just and the justifier. So that's a big general view of the book of Numbers. Two big, two big sections, I guess. You could probably divide the book of Numbers in two. Verse chapters 1 through 25, which is the first, the Exodus generation, and 26 through 34 would be the next generation or the new generation divided by census. We see the flow. They go from Sinai, then they travel, and they end up in the wilderness of Paran. They, they dwell there for about 40 years, and then they travel um, over to the plains of Moab as, they, as then they prepare to enter into the land of promise. I hope that's helpful. I want to talk a little bit about some of the big themes we're going to encounter as we enter into this journey through the book of Numbers. And today I'm just going to talk about big themes. Um, we're not going to delve into the text too deeply today. The book of Numbers, as we've said, begins and ends in the wilderness. In between are 36 chapters of wandering spanning 40 years. Again, that's why I titled this In the Wilderness. Their journey to the promised land is going to entail challenges. In fact, look at this. When we look at the very first, um, the second verse in the book of Numbers, listen to this. Well, let's go to the third chapter. Or the, well, I'll just read two and three. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. What does that tell you about the wilderness? Right off the bat, Moses, the author of the book of Numbers, is saying that the wilderness is... More likely than not, there will be war in the wilderness. There will be challenges. I mean, the wilderness just in and of itself presents challenges. And so their journey to the promised land is not going to be a simple walk in the park. 
There will be obstacles. There will be hindrances. And so how does a people called by God with a holy God in their midst um, move through this wilderness area faithfully? How do they navigate the wilderness with all of its dangers and with all of its snares? So I want to talk a little bit about the people of God because that's one of the big themes in the book of Numbers, the people of God. And let me just say this, the people of God, in order to manage and deal with all of the dangers, toils, and snares that the wilderness offers, they are going to have to live by faith. Specifically, they're going to have to believe that there is a promised land. They don't see it. They just have to believe that there is really and truly a promised land and that God has given it to them. Their temptation is going to be to lose sight of the problem, uh, to lose sight of the promise. Their, Their issue is to lose sight of the promise and only see the wilderness with all of its attendant trials, uh, which will result in them looking back to Egypt. In other words, as long as we understand by faith that God has given us the land of promise filled with milk, a land flowing of milk and honey with towns that we did not build and houses that we did not build and fields that we did not plant. As long as we keep our eyes and our attention believing that God has made this promise to us, we'll be okay. But as soon as we take our eyes off of the promise and only see the wilderness, we will begin to say we were better off in bondage. Because compared to the wilderness, Egypt looked good. The people of God have forgotten one of the main reasons for their deliverance. They were delivered so that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham of giving him all the land. And they have forgotten the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And with eyes focused on the promise, they would be strengthened to see the faithfulness of God. I think we can relate. In John 16.33, Jesus said this. He said, In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. In this world you have tribulation. I've overcome this world. And then Matthew 28.20, what does Jesus say? And remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We can get really lost and tied up in all of the stuff that's going on around us and forget what God has called us to do. And so to live by faith is to affirm the reality of God's plot for our lives, even when we do not see it. Numbers also is going to force us to confront our unbelief. So the first thing we see is the big theme is the people of God living by faith. The next big theme is what we learn about God. I want to talk about a few themes about God. The first one is the presence of God. You shouldn't be surprised that God is the central theme or the central figure in the book of Numbers. And there are numerous foundational truths that are revealed in the book of Numbers about God. So pay attention. We learn much about our God from the book of Numbers. An understanding and, and at the very, maybe 
One of the most critical things we learn from the book of Numbers about God is his presence. His presence is critical. In other words, how one remains focused on the promise um, when the wilderness trials are so immediate and God makes sure that, listen, I know the trials are immediate, but I am with you. Just like Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so how is does God make his presence known? Well, three physical ways that God makes his presence known. The cloud by day, the fire by night, and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not just some mere empty tent that was just a place of ritual. But the fiery cloud that covered it showed that the Lord was with them. Numbers chapter 23 Verse 21 helps us with this. Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation. Numbers 23, verse 21. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. This is the word of Balaam. We'll talk a little bit about Balaam today. Not much, but Balaam is a major character in the book of of Numbers. And even Balaam, uh, uh, not an Israelite, recognizes that that God is with the people of Israel. And then in Numbers chapter 14, 14, we also see the presence of God... um, made clear maybe fourteen fourteen and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard that you O Lord are in the midst of this people for you O Lord are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. The nations around would know that God is with his people. How? Because of the cloud by day and the pillar by night. And so God has made his presence known. He is with his people. He's in the midst of his people. We will see that the way the camp is organized is that God is in the center of everything they do. God is with them. But not only do we see um, the presence of God manifested in these physical ways, we also see God making himself known by revelation. In other words, God reveals himself. um, And one of the key phrases in the book of Numbers is the Lord spoke. In fact, look at how the very book begins. The Lord spoke. Moses is the main recipient of these speeches. But Moses is not the only recipient of God speaking. We see Miriam receiving, the Lord spoke to Miriam. The Lord spoke to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Balaam. And in fact, the Lord spoke to a donkey, or at least through a donkey. We read in uh, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, we read this. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all of my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
Listen, I reveal myself. I make myself known. But I have a very special relationship with Moses. So the Lord speaks. The Lord communicates. The Lord makes himself known. He not only makes himself known through the Lord speaking, but he makes himself known through his various acts like fruitful blessing. Or even through harsh judgment. Judgment is an evidence that God is in our midst. What does Hebrews say? Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. In fact, you know that you belong to the Lord when he disciplines you. Because the Lord doesn't discipline those who are not his own. Fruitful blessing, harsh judgment, manna, water, supplies, reversal of course, of human actions. In other words, let me summarize this. The book of Numbers reveals to us a God who is relational, a God who is present, a God who makes his ways known. He makes his will known. We don't need to be wondering, I wonder what God wants. Numbers tells us that God is with us and makes his will known. He orders the existence of all of his people. He commands their worship. He reminds us that he, the Lord, who is in our midst, is holy. So the first thing we see and learn about God is that he is present. Another thing that is very evident in the book of Numbers about God is that God is holy. God cannot, will not tolerate sin, uncleanness, injustice, or rebellion. God is in our midst, and he will not tolerate sin, uncleanness, injustice, or rebellion. And just as we recall back in the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai was fenced and didn't allow um, any from entering its boundaries except those whom God called lest they die. So the tabernacle also was separated from the tribes. The Lord was in their midst. And you could not just enter the tabernacle just willy-nilly. In fact, what was really interesting when I was reading this was how they packed up the tabernacle. And when it came to packing up, because remember, the tabernacle is just a, it's just a tent and it's portable. You can take the temple with you wherever you go. And within the middle of this tabernacle are, is the most holy place. And in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. And what's very interesting is, is that only Aaron, the high priest, and his sons could pack that. And they would cover it. They didn't carry it. There were other people who were assigned to carry the Ark of the Covenant. But only Aaron and his sons could pack it. They would cover it so that nobody would look upon it and die. God is holy. God is in our midst. And we honor and respect a God who is holy. Numbers chapter 20, verse 12 helps remind us of this. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This is the judgment on Moses. You did not obey me. You did not portray me as holy to the people and therefore you will not enter the land. Wow, that's harsh. God is holy. And we do not approach God any old way that we feel like it. God is holy. And he is in our midst. So we see that God is present. He has made himself known. So we know how we are to relate to him. God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin or uncleanness or injustice or rebellion. But we also see that God is gracious. His holiness is tempered by his graciousness. 
And the way we see this is all of the laws that we see in the book of Numbers. I know we read those laws and we think, oh, look at all these things. This is, this is God's graciousness. It reminds the people of his holiness and it provides a means to avert his wrath. Moses pleads for the people of God and God relents. We see God gracious. Moses pleads, don't judge this people. And God listens to Moses. We see atonement for sin being provided. This probably is best recognized in, um, in the story about the fiery serpents. You'll recall, and fiery does, doesn't mean they were, fiery is just the Hebrew way of saying they were poisonous. They, um, Hebrews didn't have a way of saying poison. They don't have a word for that. So they would say they were fiery because if they bite, it burned. So it was a fiery serpent. It's not like they were flaming serpents. They were just poisonous serpents. But they rebelled and they grumbled against God and God sent fiery serpents or poisonous serpents among them. And then and people were getting bit and dying. They were being judged by God. But God in his graciousness said, Moses, make an image of a poisonous snake, put it up on a staff and raise that snake up. Lift that snake up and everybody who looks upon that snake on that pole in faith will live. God has provided a means to escape his wrath. So we see the graciousness of God. Another place we see God's graciousness. I love this. This is kind of more implicit. And that is in the story of Balaam. If you don't know the story of Balaam, it's going to be a while before we get there. But Balaam was um, a a so-called prophet who was hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Israel's been coming through the wilderness and they're a big company. And and everybody recognizes God is with them because amazing things are happening. And the king of Moab says, we cannot defeat that army. There is no way we can defeat this army. Our only hope is we're going to call in and pay for a prophet to curse Israel. And if they curse Israel, we stand a chance. And so they hire this guy by the name of Balaam. And Balaam's up in the mountains and Israel's down in the plains. And Balaam is going to curse Israel, but instead all he does is bless them. And Balaam is saying, listen, I can only do what God allows me to do. And God's not allowing me to curse them. Here's the interesting thing about that. Unbeknownst to Israel in the plains, God is, making provi- God is protecting them in the mountains. They have no idea what's going on. None whatsoever. They're just down in the plains minding their own business saying, man, is the 40 years almost done? When are we going to get out of here? Meanwhile, there's a threat that they have no idea about. And God, unbeknownst to them, is working on their behalf. And I just took so much encouragement, and I hope you will too, that unbeknownst to us, God is fighting for us. God is fighting battles we don't even know exist. That's an awesome thought. God is gracious. God is present. God is holy. And God is gracious. He makes his will known so we know what to do. But even when we don't know what's going on, God is fighting battles. I wonder how many today have... How many battles have been won and we have no idea? He guides them. So, and so God intervenes on their behalf. Balaam cannot curse them. They're going to still enter the land and he's going to guide them and provide for them. So that's a big 
broad overview of the book of Numbers. Let me just maybe provide a little Christian relevance as we um, uh, bring this message to a close. Some Christian relevance. I want to present to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, which we read earlier. I want to present to you Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. I want to re- present to you Jude 11, 2 Peter 2:15, 2, 2 Peter 1:19, and John 3:14. These are all New Testament authors who are referencing directly the book of Numbers. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 to open our study. Revelation chapter 2, 14, Jude 11, um, and 2 Peter 2, 15 all talk about Balaam. And don't be like Balaam. Jude 11 talks about the rebellion of Korah. Um, and John chapter 3, verse 14 um, talks about the serpent being lifted up. You'll recall Jesus is meeting with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he call and he goes to Jesus by night and he says this. He says, listen, we know that you're from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, you must be born again. Your lineage through Abraham isn't enough to save you, is not enough to keep you holy before a righteous God. You need a new birth. You need to be born of the water and the spirit, which is a reference to, a, to Ezekiel chapter 36, where, G, where God says in the new covenant, I'm going to pour out the water of blessing upon them and purify them from their sins. And I'm going to put my spirit in them and make them and give them a new heart. That's the kind of birth you need. And then he goes on and he says, Jesus starts talking about just as the serpent, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and everybody who looked upon the serpent was saved, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would have Everlasting would not be would not be condemned, but would have everlasting life. Jesus basically sa- says that that serpent lifted up in the wilderness is an image. It is pointing to another time when the Son of Man will be lifted up as a curse, and all who look to Him by faith will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we see. Incredible New Testament relevance. I don't think you can understand the New Testament if you don't understand. I shouldn't say that. The New Testament will be high death if you understand the book of Numbers. When you understand the serpent in the wilderness, you will much better understand John chapter 3 and what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Because in this way, God loved the world is directly connected to the serpent being lifted up. The rebellion of Korah and the sin of Balaam is over and over again in the New Testament. Here's the other thing we see. is These New Testament quotes come from Paul, come from Jude, come from Peter, and come from John. It's not just from one author. The almost, not almost, but a large number of New Testament authors see relevance in the book of Numbers and use the book of Numbers to make their point. So there is much relevance to us. And then let me just make this next point.
and that is the centrality of the gospel in the book of Numbers. I want to encourage you that if you are losing sight of the promise, if you feel like you are starving in the wilderness, if you are wondering if God can be trusted, then the book of Numbers will be encouraging to you. Because just as the tabernacle was centered in the midst of the people, so Christ dwells with us in the midst of his people. In fact, what does John 1.14 say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. He is in our midst. He tabernacles in our midst. And he entered the wilderness for 40 days and experienced the suffering of his people. He did not fail as Israel did, but he was faithful. And he endured the cross, not simply show us that it's possible to do and that we can obey and do just as he did. No, Jesus endured the wilderness on our behalf in our place. His obedience is credited to us as perfect righteousness and enables us to stand in the presence of a holy God. He ascended into heaven and he has prepared a promise for us. The wilderness will end and we will enter his rest. You can be certain of heaven because Jesus has already reached it. And I want to encourage you today, if you are united to Christ by faith, then the promises are for you. Father, we come before you this day and we give praise and thanks for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are present. We thank you, Lord God, that you are holy. We thank you, Lord God, that you are gracious. We thank you, Lord God, that you have fulfilled your purposes in Christ and that there is a promise awaiting those of us who have by faith been joined to Christ. And Lord, sometimes this life grows wearisome. Sometimes we wonder if it's worth it. Sometimes we look back and wonder if, if we shouldn't just go back to the way we were prior to Christ. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. Let us not grumble against you. Let us understand and walk by faith and live the life that you've called us to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and know that he is our forerunner. So have mercy upon us this day. Grant us favor and grace. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand.